0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to You Have to Watch This. This is the podcast where me and my co-host, Ted Ryan, say hi, Ted. Hello. Biweekly, we recommend a movie for each other to watch, but this week we changed it up a little bit. Our topic was I Have to Watch This, so Ted picked a movie that I've seen that Ted wanted to see, and I picked a movie of Ted's that I really wanted to see. So what were our two films? The two films that we picked from each other's libraries were,
1: from my library, you picked... The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly by Sergio Leone. Sergio Leone. For various reasons that we'll get into later. And the film that I picked that I wanted to see that you had seen was Call Me By Your Name by Luca Guadagnino. Yep.
0: So we'll do our ceremonial coin flip as to determine what movie we will watch first. As a reminder, Tales is for Ted. Good flip. It is Heads, so that's me. I would like to discuss these movies in the order that we watch them. So that means we're starting with The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Ted, tell us a little bit about The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. So this film definitely holds a special place in my heart.
1: When I was younger, kind of when I was in middle school, uh, I got really into film. And I wanted to be a film director and or film writer, or something like that. And so, of course, getting into film, you start with the classics, you know? And I think I might have finished the first Red Dead Redemption around the same time, so I wanted to pick a western. And, of course, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is the quintessential western in the pop-cultural mindset and the pop-cultural zeitgeist. When you think this film, like, that is the western. And so... I remember I watched it and I really enjoyed it, and then I kind of forgot about it, you know, like it it faded into memory. And we had recently started a role playing game campaign in the Genesis system, uh, which is also known as Star Wars Ed- Star Wars Edge of the Empire. And we mentioned that we should watch some westerns so that I could get some inspiration. So that's one of the reasons why we we, we rewatched this and overall like my my memory of the film was mostly positive however upon rewatching it with you for this podcast I feel as if I have a much more conflicted and nuanced opinion of the film it changed a lot in my mind mm-hmm.
0: yeah so uh, I should say we're gonna do semi-quick uh no spoilers section and then we're gonna hop into a spoiler section have some fun in there and really talk about how we uh How we felt with this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quick IMDb summary. I'm sure a majority of you have already seen this movie or at least know the last like 15 minutes. But a bounty hunting scam joins two men in an uneasy alliance against a third in a race to find a fortune in gold buried in a remote cemetery. It's a pretty simple premise. You have, as the title indicates, the good, who is Clint Eastwood. You have the bad, who is Angel Eyes. And you have the ugly, who is character Tuco. Ted, how' do you feel about each of these characters and then that kind of general plot that we outlined?
1: These three characters
0: very much fill the
1: archetypes of the western very perfectly if they had not formed the archetypes as a result of this film. Clint Eastwood is plays the most handsome man, man ever. Uh, he is suave, he's cool, he's collected, he's calm under pressure and he you know he's an expert marksman. And he gives a mysterious uh, performance. You know, he, he always steals the camera in every scene that he's in. And in terms of the bad uh, Angel Eyes, I'm gonna get I'm gonna come back to the bad. But uh, the ugly Tuco gives an interesting performance. I, we mentioned earlier that this film follows three main characters, and of the three, Tuco, the ugly, is definitely the main character of this story. He is very much the driver of the plot in many scenes, and he probably gets the most screen time of the three. However, I wasn't particularly crazy about his performance. There are several moments in the film where I do think where he has some subtlety. His character really shines. But I think most of the time, I found him mildly annoying, almost, and not all the comedy worked for me. And in terms of the bad... In preparation for this film, I watched another, uh, the predecessor to this film, for a few dollars more by the same director, same cast and crew, basically. And in that film, Clint Eastwood and the actor who plays Angel Eyes, uh, Van Cleef, he plays uh, a good guy, essentially. And he gave an amazing performance in this film, but I wasn't very impressed by his performance as the villain (laughs) in this movie. What did you think of him?
0: Um, Well, just to kind of run through all the characters, starting with the good, uh, as you did. Blondie, I felt, was kind of a nothing character. He looked really cool. The stuff he did was cool. But there weren't defined character, character traits that I feel like one could rest their hat on. Besides what you talked about, like suave, competent. It's really something... That I imagine a lot of these westerns have. Of as opposed to being a character study, it's more like a cool archetype that the male audience can, could project themselves onto.
1: I definitely agree with that, and I think I might be conflating Clint Eastwood's character in the "For a Few Dollars More." Uh like I'm, I'm you know, the, the same character in both films. So I think I'm like, I think he gives a stronger and more interesting performance in "For a Few Dollars More,"
0: mm-hmm. and then as for. I'll go to Tuco. I'll skip the bad for a second as well. Tuco, I found, as you felt, kind of annoying. I do like the idea that he's the main character of this story. The plot comes from him. A majority of the movie is him. But, like, of the three, I found him the least interesting. I didn't really care when he was on screen if it wasn't affecting the two characters I cared about. There's a weird... I don't want to get into spoiler territory, but there's unnecessary background with this character. And I was like, this isn't benefiting the movie, in my opinion. There is one scene
1: of his background that I think was probably my favorite character driven part in the film. However, I think as a result of us unknowingly watching the extended edition, there were a ton of scenes, especially with him, that are completely pointless and add nothing to the story.
0: Mm-hmm. That's something I definitely want to get into. Let me just talk about the bad for a second. Angel eyes I thought was without a doubt the most interesting character in this movie and he's just not in it enough. <laughs> right. Like that's a fact. He that performance Van Cleef you said mm-hmm. is like the epitome of w- lawful evil. Not to go all DD alignment <laughs> on you because characters are more nuanced than nine options, but He clearly has a set of rules that he follows, but he also is following them to an evil Mm -hmm. end place. For his own,
1: to further his own self goals. Mm -hmm.
0: And I want to talk about that opening scene a little bit because it's within the first 10, 15 minutes where he goes to interrogate someone and as you may imagine, it ends in Bloodshed. not getting into details but i thought it was really interesting and maybe it's just because we're coming off of once upon a time in hollywood but you can tell tarantino got elements of that opening scene for inglorious bastards oh yeah so it evokes that similar uh added that similar mood of like character on horseback approaching from a grainy desert to be seen by a family member to then later be interrogating the male the patriarch of the household and it's just like
1: while sipping soup yeah having his meal
0: yeah and they're really comparable in that the tension build up is just so stellar and then the ultimate delivery is just as satisfying as it is in inglorious bastards in my opinion but unfortunately i don't know if that movie ever got to that point again for me except for the ending that everyone knows definitely yeah, I mean, that
1: the introduction of uh, Angel Eyes is so strong and memorable, you know, and from the start of the film, it's like, it kind of gives like an equal introduction in terms of like the time and duration for like all three characters. Tuco's a little bit shorter of an introduction. I think for me, that's the biggest fault of the mo- movie for me personally, is because the bad isn't in the film a lot, yeah. and he gives a great performance, and... You know, there comes to a point in the film where we were joking, like, is he even in this film? And then (laughs) he showed up again. Like, that's how long it took for us to comment on it. Like, he's gone for a while.
0: Yeah, the movie's three hours, so he disappears for probably an hour. But while we're kind of on that topic, uh, you mentioned this movie being overlong. I joke about it frequently, but I do genuinely (laughs) believe that no movie could ever be made better by being longer Sometimes you may want to see more of the characters, more of the world, but in terms of narrative structure, movies are much better being shorter and tighter, and this movie is (laughs) loosey-goosey. Yeah. It is, there are so many scenes I don't care about. There are so many (laughs) parts in scenes I don't care about, and it gets to the point where it's like genuinely frustrating, because you're watching a movie that's two hours and 58 minutes, and you're like, what's happening right now? This I isn't do...
1: building towards anything narratively or emotionally.
0: Yeah. Or if it's like weird nuanced background about Tuco and his family. Or if it's like <laughs> Confederate <laughs> forgiveness or whatever. This film, building off
1: of that, this film takes place during the American Civil War. And I think this film is at odds with its setting where it wants to tell a big epic War story with hundreds of extras and horse riders and cannons going off in every direction. And then you also have this classic Western story of treasure. I don't really feel like those two properly mix together. And I think a big part of where that length, the bad pacing, the length of the film is most visible is is where it leans more into the war aspect. Because it's like, I didn't come to see this Civil War story told by... A non-American that yeah. feels like it gets it completely wrong.
0: Yeah, definitely. But we'll get into that maybe more in spoilers because there are definitely specific scenes we could reference.
1: Uh, I think one thing that is fantastic that needs to be mentioned is the brilliant score and music of the film. It really... In moments where I felt the pacing was bad or it was getting on too long, I think it, the the score carried the film for me and really elevated especially the ending, but a lot of other sequences to
0: another level. I, th- I agree. I think the score was absolutely phenomenal. That being said, for me, this was a case of it being so ingrained in the zeitgeist and the fact that I've seen the Family Guy parody and the Simpsons <laughs> parody and the SpongeBob parody and all this, that it f- was hard for me to take it seriously. Really? So that's like totally on me as a viewer. But it was distracting when you have that. I don't. I don't want to do it. But the <laughs> the noise we all know, the like music. And wah, 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 wah. There, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's distracting because it's like that's the parody music that is in everything, and that's no fault of the movie. But it I, that was a note I made.
1: Yeah, I think that's the difficulty in watching classics. You know, like. It's sometimes hard to revisit the original and yeah. not think about everything else you've seen before it.
0: Gangster's Paradise is not as cool after you've listened to Amish Paradise by Weird Al Yankovic, you know? Or
1: here in a Sonic trailer.
0: Yeah, or in a Sonic trailer. <laughs> you know, it takes it takes away from the original piece when you've consumed the parody first.
1: I would agree with that. And I think with that, we should venture into spoiler territory uh, and... I think we're gonna do it in a little bit of a fun way. Uh, We're gonna be talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly aspects of the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, I think we should start off with the good elements of the movie. For me personally, where the film may fall in the overall narrative, I think it succeeds in scenes, you know? It has a very uh, theatrical production to it, where it feels like um, many scenes begin and end almost like a stage play, you know, like establishing shot, character enter frame, uh, you know, and the way characters talk to each other. And I think it, the overall pacing isn't great, but I felt like when every
0: new scene started, I, I was at least captivated again from the start. That's a really good point, I think, because within scenes, there were sequences I thought that were amazing. Uh, Several come to mind if we want to get into that. I mean, the best example that isn't already iconic is the scene where he throws the dead body on top of the railroad tracks to break the handcuffs. Yes, Tuco. Yeah, Tuco does that. I'm sorry. That was so cool. But then you look at what surrounds it and it's like, okay, what's (laughs) the point? of him getting captured because it just slows him down he's immediately going to catch up with our two other main protagonists and what's the point of all the scenes of him on the train and like the weird like the union guy goes by or the the union guy goes by on the front of the confederate train and it's like union spy it's like what is the point of all these sequences Mm -hmm. you know what i mean not to not to skip to the bad but i did that was See,
1: see, that is a perfect example of how this film, the difficulty of this film, where there's so much great element, there's so much good, but it's tied with so much bad and ugly in the same scene, you know? So it's (laughs) like, you almost have to cherry pick your experience walking away from this film. Definitely. Uh, One aspect that I truly loved in terms of the storytelling is the relationship between the good and the ugly. Blondie and Tuco. Uh, at first, they were introdu- introduced to them, and they're kind of running a uh, bounty hunting racket fraud almost. Where yeah. Tuco gets captured, and a noose placed around his neck, and Blondie shoots the rope out and saves him at the last second. And they make off with the bounty money that was for Tuco. And the the films, like, first two acts are them, like, going back and forth, betraying each other, and going, like... Trying to one-up each other. And then the big kickoff to the treasure heist is that this confederate soldier, uh, in his dying breath, tells different parts of information to the location of this treasure to both of them. So now they're stuck with each other if they want this confederate gold supply. And the way they play that out is so entertaining. And that they're forced to adventure together out of necessity, which... I think is one of my favorite uh, tropes or themes in storytelling where like enemies become like begrudging allies and then they kind of become better and better friends as the story goes on. And I think for me the culmination of this theme is there's a scene where in which Tuco brings Blondie to a convent where priests are healing both sides of the civil war for free, basically. And in that, we find out that Tuco's brother is the head missionary, the head priest of this convent. And afterwards, when they're riding away from the missionary after, Tuco has a difficult talk, a difficult argument with his brother that he hadn't seen in years. Blondie offers up his cigarette or his cigar to Tuco. And, you know, they don't really exchange a lot of words, but Blondie listens to their conversation and he doesn't rub it in his face. You know, they, in that moment, they become brothers, whereas Tuco has just lost his first brother.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, And that kind of, that setup pays off in the end, which I'm sure we'll get to. But the thing I like about all three of these characters, honestly, including Tuco, is that they're all competent. And they show that competency through choice and action. Very little happens in this movie by chance. So you think like Tuco isn't stupid. Like he may be annoying at sometimes. He definitely is impulsive, but he's not stupid. You think of how he deals with Blondie before and after they find Bill Carson. Or even when they do, like like I think about the scene where Tuco sneaks in in the back to um, sneak up on Blondie when he sends his men to go in the front. These characters are smart, and who they are is revealed through those choice and actions. And then that is shown through Blondie, who even in, in his dying moments, thinks to crawl over to Bill Carson to hear the other parts of that information because he knows Tuco is too greedy to give up something like $200,000 in gold. And then you think of Angel Eyes, and he is probably the most competent of the three.
1: The it- most ruthless. Yeah,
0: definitely. So it's like the same level of competency, but shown three different ways. And that was something I really appreciated because I feel like so often in movies, conflict comes from coincidence and chance. And this came from who these characters are fundamentally.
1: That's definitely a strong point, And I think that's... The film is also probably one of its strongest when it pits the characters morals and moral code against each other and seeing how they they're forced into this twisted contract to get this gold, you know, Mm -hmm. seeing that play out is really engaging, you know, and you continually you continue to find out more and more about the characters as it goes along. It's not like you find out everything
0: within the first act, you know, definitely. Yeah. I think if we're all set with talking about kind of the characters moving to some other aspects we really enjoyed about the movie on the more filmmaking end I think it's obviously shot incredibly beautifully Uh, especially towards the ending which we'll get to you have a lot of truly iconic shots and even shots that I've never seen before from this movie like the Civil War scene where you have the hundreds and hundreds of extras running out to fight on this bridge it's almost like uh Kubrick's paths of glory I was reminded of that and I mean it again not to bring us to the bad but it definitely is feels at odds with the western that the movie's trying to tell but on a purely filmmaking level it's really kind of jaw-dropping to watch
1: I agree absolutely and where those scenes shine in a, whether it be a small intimate scene or a big epic battlefield, is that the movement of figures within the frame is yeah. always fantastic. the The one scene that comes to mind is Angel Angel Eyes introduction, and we have this lockdown sh- medium shot of the interior of this home that he's robbing, and it just holds on that shot as he slowly comes closer to his target. You know, through these archways and the way he leaves that scene in the same way where he just guns down another family member and just pure like artistic beauty in the in the way characters move and just the beautiful production design and the sets, it's
0: just fantastic. Another shot that comes to mind that's definitely more on the intimate end than the Civil War scene is when Tuco's leading Blondie through the desert and the shot is I think it's a fade into the shot. It starts with their shadows moving across the yes. desert.
1: And sand
0: being yeah. kicked
1: down and sliding down the
0: dune. And it very slowly pans up to reveal, like, Blondie's, like, basically hobbling at that point, And Tuco's on his horse, kind of like Lawrence of Arabia-esque. It's really, like, I appreciate when the movie takes time in shots or sequences to, like, be patient. It's when that gets dragged on to full scenes or full acts <laughs> that you get an issue
1: and a lot of scenes like make you miss the era of filming on location this film has so many like beautiful vistas and details like the sand rolling down the dune and like the camera lingering on that That like i feel like we miss almost in this era of green screens and you know big blockbusters you know it's it, it takes the moment to film like everything in beauty whether it be prisoner of war being executed
0: or you know trees swaying in the forest Mm -hmm. so is there anything else in the middle or could we move into the last say 30 minutes of this movie
1: I think so um we mentioned before that the ending of this film is truly iconic and in the finale sequence they finally reach the cemetery where the treasure is hidden and Tuco reaches there reaches it first and he's running around looking for the gravestone he finds it but before he can do so the music's swelling and almost akin to the stargate sequence from 2001 the motion blur goes crazy as he's frantically you know running around and the music keeps building and building and you get into this like mindset of Tuko where it's like the treasure's so close it's i think the final score is called like the ecstasy Ex- ecstasy 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 of gold and that's like the perfect name for the sequence just okay. like it's so engrossing and you want the treasure just as much as Tuko does in that moment
0: because of how long it took to get here you have the that end of the civil war scene and then you have the cannon <laughs> blotty firing the cannon at Tuko which was pretty funny and then yeah it shifts into the good the bad the ugly that i expected this whole movie to be this gorgeous extreme wide shots of just an entire graveyard surrounded by this circular pillar that anyone who knows anything about film knows what's going to happen on that circular pillar (laughs) knows that there's going to be a shootout and the music, I guess it's ecstasy of gold is just remarkable. It's truly what leads this sequence to transcend to greatest sequences greatest scenes of all time in my opinion and the that song just you know elevates this movie from like
1: from a western story to like a true like myth of like biblical scale you know like it it's so massive in scope and like ambition that you know they that they, they swung for the fences with that song and it just it, it plays off entirely you know and Playing off the music, the editing of that sequence is fantastic with extreme close-ups as the three of them finally, they agree to have a showdown to get the information they need. You know, it's a rapid intercutting of figures walking between each other and fingers slightly twitching and moving closer and closer to the guns in their holsters and, you know, eyes darting back and forth, sweat dripping off their forehead and just...
0: It's so tense and just it gets wound up, you know, and just, oh, it's so good. I think this movie is the ultimate testament to the idea that the ending is the most important part of a movie. Because you watch this movie, and a lot of it is overlong. Segments are honestly boring and unnecessary. <laughs> but then you watch these last 30 minutes, and who could argue? Making and where it was in the Western genre, but I do almost lump it with the usual suspects in the fact that a bunch of people saw this movie and they remember the ending and they forget the more typical aspects of acts one and two. Right. With that said, do we want to move into the bad? Some of the aspects we've already been talking about it, but more of the aspects that we didn't like about this movie. A good place to start would be the start of the movie, the title sequence. <laughs> yeah,
1: I completely forgot about that. The opening title sequence is embarrassing from a graphic design and <laughs> illustration standpoint. It's like there are like stills of the film, and then they are, are red filters put over them, and we have these cheesy little cartoons of horses running and a cannon firing. It is embarrassing, it's childish, and it completely sets the wrong tone for the film. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, it sets the tone that this is a great Western being blown up by a shitty Civil War movie. (laughs) (laughs) Which I guess, upon reflection, that's what the movie was.
1: Right, yeah. I want to save the aspects of the Civil War for the ugly. Same. uh, But one thing I definitely have to mention is that I feel like this... This is very much a movie of white men.
0: Yeah.
1: Very little diversity in the actors and the characters in it. And when there is diversity, it's almost played for... Not racist, but definitely coming from a white perspective. You know, the Civil War is such a, is such a time period that's rooted in so many... Uh, you know racial aspects and there is not a single black person in this entire film and I think that's such a core part of the Civil War that to not even touch upon it it is kind of confounding
0: and even just like because you were talking about that and I thought like oh well Tuco uh but that is a white Polish man (laughs) which I'd not realize watching it but yeah you're right it's definitely and maybe this was the of the era but I feel I don't like that excuse as much but yeah, it's definitely a film dominated by white men. Very little women in the story. When they are there, they're usually mistreated or abused. So mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a critique I have. Um, another like quick thing is the ADR is very bad. Oh my God, it was
1: horrible.
0: Um, for Tuco, it's especially bad in my opinion. And then Blondie sounds weird. And then I just assumed that was Clint Eastwood's voice. But it's Clint Eastwood's old man voice because they re-recorded it in 2001, and that's what you're hearing in the extended cut. So it was very distracting, frankly. Um, I haven't seen many spaghetti westerns. Maybe that's something you just get used to, almost like with certain animes. But I thought it was worth bringing up, even if just for a quick moment, that that is something (laughs) that can take away from certain monologues.
1: I don't have much for bad so would you want to move into
0: the ugly i have a couple more things (laughs) more (laughs) about more about specifics with things i've already talked about so we talked about unnecessary scenes so just to name a few that really bugged me enough to note (laughs) why do they go to a confederate camp when tuco is trying to find a place to take blondie in they literally they pull up to this confederate camp and the soldiers are like we're all full here Go to this place. And then they go to this place. And no... Nothing happens in between. And the only... The genuine only reason... Like no character development happens. The only reason I could think to include this scene... Is to show the friendliness of confederate soldiers. Yes. And we'll get to that in the ugly. But it's... It's distracting. Why is that in the movie?
1: Think about how many extras are in that scene. There might be maybe 40 men... 40 men in costume in the background. And then the one that talks. Mm -hmm. And then you you set up a location... Nighttime filming, set up some torches and lanterns, get the film rolling, all for basically in service of raising up the Confederacy. It goes out of the way to yeah. raise them up.
0: Absolutely. The characters go out of the way to go there, and then the movie <laughs> goes out of the way to go there. We talked about this. You said you kind of enjoyed the scene. I thought it was mundane and annoying. Why do we need to know about Tuko's brother? It didn't come up later. I, at that point, had already decided the character Kuko was, so it didn't really
1: humanize him for me. It, it, I think for me, that scene worked because of the aftermath of the scene. The scene itself... That's a really good point. Kind of cheesy and a little cliche, but the interaction Blondie and, and Tuco have made it work.
0: I like that. And I made this note before that scene came up. But the one last one I have is a useless sequence within a useless scene, in my opinion. Um, why is the union captain's reason... Like, what's the reason that he gives this monologue about the virtues of booze? Like... Because, okay, that's wrapped up in some Civil War sequence we don't need. But, say you really want to keep that. Why is this specific part in the movie? It doesn't reveal anything about the two characters we care about. It's not enough to make me care when the Union captain dies.
1: It's framed and filmed as if it's a tragic loss of life as a result of war. Like, we're losing some great man. Mm -hmm. He is a drunkard. (laughs) He is a cruel man. I He is flippant with the loss of life of both sides. He's bitter, he's cruel, and that character, I feel like, could have been been removed entirely.
0: Absolutely. And again, it's like, why include him other than to show that the Union soldiers were bumbling drunks or something? Like, I fundamentally cannot think of a reason to include some of these scenes other than what we're going to talk about in The Ugly. But one more thing real quick is, you mentioned this, in the non-spoiler section, I believe, how you felt re-engaged when a new scene started. I felt like the movie made no attempt to organically move from one scene to another. The worst example of this was when Tuco and Blondie are walking down this dirt road, talking about the gold that they're very close to after that big Civil War scene, and Union soldiers come out from the trees, and they're like, ah, come with us, buds, And it is revealed that they are literally walking right next to a giant union camp.
1: A giant valley where there are soldier encampments on both sides of the river. With cannons and hundreds of men. And the way it's framed, there is no way, diegetically, that our two characters would have not been able to see it.
0: Yeah, and it's like, there's only a few trees, like, blocking it. And shrubs. And it's just like as if the director or screenwriter said, okay, we had this scene. Now we want to move into a Civil War scene. How do we get there? Oh, let's just have them get captured again. Oh, well, we don't really want to have a long drawn-out sequence of them being imprisoned because we already have that. So let's just have them be right next to the camp. But then you're watching it and it feels lazy. And it's frustrating because it feels as if you did this roundabout way to get to a scene you didn't care about. That felt completely unnecessary.
1: It just stops the plot completely for this little side story that doesn't really amount to anything besides an obstacle.
0: And the movie lacked those organic transitions through the whole duration of the film, in my opinion.
1: Building off of that, since that is a Civil War scene, I think we should get right into it. The Ugly. The thing that has dominated my perception and memory of the film since we watched it four or five days ago is the treatment of the Civil War and how I think it completely mishandles the treatment and I don't think it holds up to a modern perspective.
0: A lot of articles I read after watching this movie, um, mainly honestly about the difference between the extended cut and the regular cut or the U.S. theatrical cut, were talking about how Sergio Leone wanted to capture the unnecessary nature of war, the wastefulness of it, the wastefulness of human life and the wastefulness of resources. And in my opinion, that's not conveyed at all through the filmmaking. What is conveyed is how wasteful the Civil War was because of like the Union's aggression. Because you look and how are Confederate soldiers depicted, you know, where Confederate soldiers are telling our two main characters where to go to receive care uh, when Blondie is ill Union soldiers are literally forcing prisoners to carry their own coffins so then they could be executed by firing squad to fall into their own coffin like this is Sideshow Bob in a Treehouse of Horrors or something.
1: Right, it feels like a Simpsons gag it's so unrealistic and like removed from like any emotional reality
0: and as we talked about earlier, like so many of the scenes, it feels like that's the only point is to be forgiving towards the South in the context of the Civil War.
1: And building off of that, uh, the Civil War is such a, it's so deeply rooted in the racial history of America, most notably that of, that it was a, you know, the Civil War happened because of slavery, you know, that's one of the driving factors and there is not a single black person mentioned or presented in the film nor is there any you know mention of slavery and the it's it just feels like you can't do the civil war without mentioning it this kind of like perfectly encapsulates like my overall feelings and like my conclusion of this film is that there you it's difficult revisiting classic films cuz You know, they may nail certain aspects of the film from a technical and artistic standpoint. But you also have to take the good with the bad and the ugly. And, you know, the film being at odds with being a Western and a Civil War story that completely fails the Civil War aspect of it. I think the, for a few dollars more, has taken that place of... Good, the Bad, and the Ugly in my mind as the quintessential Western. And I hope we get to revisit that film for a future episode and then, you know, come back to this movie.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I just want to kind of say, I personally feel like you can't cancel these movies. You know, you can't cancel Gone with the Wind because it's literally the biggest movie of all time according to Adjusted Box Office Gross. You can't cancel... Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby because of how much of an entry that film is into the horror genre you can't cancel American Beauty or Kevin Spacey's whole acting career all the movies he's been in because of how problematic we now know him to be because these films are too ingrained into the zeitgeist they're too important in film movements but if we're forced to talk about them because of the technical aspects of the movie, we also have to talk about the problems with the movie. If you're going to talk about birth of a nation and the fact that it basically invented editing and film, you should start with the fact that it is racist propaganda about the Ku Klux Klan retaking a Southern town from former slaves. You know what I mean? So I think people often pick one side or the other where nope, that, you can't like that movie anymore because this director we now know is problematic. Or let's just pretend nothing happened and appreciate the movie because we have to separate the art from the artist. I think what is most beneficial is to appreciate the filmmaking while also recognizing when the film came of a different era or was made by people who we now know to be incredibly flawed. We discuss that. And by appreciating the
1: technical and artistic aspects but acknowledging the things that don't hold up to a modern lens i think that gives new filmmakers a chance to revisit these old genres Mm -hmm. uh with a new fresh perspective definitely no people always say oh the western genre is dead but i don't fully believe that i feel like every one or two years we get a new western that feels like a fresh take you know and You know, the westerns of Clint Eastwood and John Wayne, that is definitely gone. The western is no longer a male chauvinist fantasy, but we as a culture have moved on and, and, you know, we've moved on to different aspects of the western myth.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's like removing the problems but keeping the good stuff, you know? The modern westerns are Brokeback Mountain, which is two men falling in love over this trip and two cowboys and how they struggle with that. It's Logan, which is reinventing the comic book genre the superhero genre by lending on things from movies like Shane or it's Chloe Zhao's The Rider which is about a cowboy suffering a near fatal head injury you know what you know like stories being told about diverse groups by diverse filmmakers and that's why I think we shouldn't just cancel the movies that may have inspired them
1: You know, these films, no matter how problematic they may be, they are part of the tapestry of Westerns and a tapestry of films in our culture. And I'll say it again, because I like the ring of it. You have to take the good with the bad and the ugly. And yeah, what are your... Do you have any other concluding thoughts?
0: Yeah, one, just one concluding thing, kind of summarizing what we've talked about. With this movie, you have a truly iconic, unreproducible beginning with the introduction of our characters And ending with that showdown. The beginning 20 minutes. And the last 20 minutes. What is in between them is an overlong problematic plot. That this obviously wouldn't improve how the Civil War was handled in this movie. But I think could have been drastically improved if it was cut down to two hours. A lot of unnecessary scenes. Maybe it would be improved because you could cut out a lot of that. Confederacy forgiveness that we see. But yeah that's kind of my ending thought on this film. But something I wanted to ask you, because we asked this with a lot of the classics now, does this belong in the best films of all time? This is in, this is nine, I believe, for IMDb's top top 250. It has a 90 on Metascore. It's in Letterboxd's top 20. Does it belong that high?
1: That is a fascinating question. Can I forgive the film for its faults I honestly, I don't think I can. I think my answer is no.
0: I'm in the same boat. I would put it in the IMDb Top 250. I would put it among some of the greatest movies ever made, but I don't think it deserves to be as high as it is. I think it's very problematic, but removing the problematic aspect of it the filmmaking is problematic um it obviously looks incredible it sounds incredible but narratively there's some really inefficient storytelling going on it's exciting this is the first one i think where we're like man it's not as good as people say
1: right we both have um letterbox lists where we've rate all the movies that we've reviewed on our podcast and you know i expected this to be in like my top five with you know harakiri and yeah. one flew over the cuckoo's nest like classics that really hold up and really resonate with me in a person on a personal level and i think it's near the bottom of my personal list
0: yeah it's near the bottom for me too i do still think people should watch this movie but i think they should first watch silence of the lambs and moonlight and <laughs> cuckoo's nest and some of these movies that we have already watched and i was also surprised by where it ended up placing in my list it's funny that we bring up the letterbox list because re- revisiting Good, the
1: Bad, and the Ugly, I was hoping that it would be near the uppermost part of my list, similar to other classics such as Harakiri and Casablanca and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That you know, they, These are classics that do hold up to time and do resonate with me on a personal level. However, I think for both of us, uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is near the bottom of both of our lists. However, I think I was surprised to find out that I really loved our next film that we'll talk about, Call Me By Your Name. Uh, I really didn't know what to expect going into this. Uh, I knew it was a romance between two young men, and that was really it. So I went into it with a fresh mind and... The first act, I was like, okay, this is fine. And then the second act, I was kind of getting into it, and I was like, gone. I was destroyed by the, uh, by the time the credits rolled around.
0: Yeah, so this was a smaller movie, so just as a little refresher for people who may have missed it, um, it came out in 2017, and plot summary is, in 1980s Italy, a romance blossoms between a 17-year-old student and the older man hired as his father's research assistant. The younger man is Timothy Chalamet, who plays the character Elio. And the older man, the research assistant, is Armie Hammer, who plays Oliver. So this movie's really special to me. Ted and I have talked about it, but there aren't a lot of movies that I personally see myself in. Especially romantic movies. Growing up, I never liked romantic comedies. And I thought it was just like, they all have the same plot, which is true. But it was also, I didn't identify with anyone in the story, so it wasn't engaging.
1: And I can relate similarly, where I always felt like, like, oh, that's something that uh, you'll grow into or understand as you become an adult, you yeah. know? And I never felt that way.
0: Mm-hmm. But now recently we've had Moonlight, which is probably the first time I saw myself in a romantic story, and then Call Me By Your Name and then Love Simon which are all three very special movies to me. And we've already watched Moonlight, so this was a <laughs> exciting one to get into. We're not really going to have a spoiler, non-spoiler discussion, just because the plot of this movie is very simple. And what you more so watch it for is the mood, in my opinion. We'll start with the characters. Um, Elio and Oliver are the two main characters, although sure, I'm sure we're going to get to the point The parts of this movie that focus on the relationship between the parents and Elio as well. But, Ted, how did you feel about uh, Elio, Oliver, those performances, and their relationship? So, the film really
1: introduces us like right as we... Oliver is brought into this world. Uh, He... Oliver is this archaeology or anthropology student who has come to this little Italian villa owned by uh, Elio's parents and uh, they share a bedroom and uh, sure enough they begin to spend more and more time together and a romance blossoms. I'll start with Oliver. I thought he was very charismatic and Um, An interesting person. He has a mysterious quality to him. Uh, He's very playful and physical. Uh, Whereas Elio is more reserved and quiet. And so seeing their dynamic play out was interesting. I will say at the start, I didn't like Elio.
0: I think you're supposed to kind of not like either character. Because Elio is very much inside his own head. And is... Overly arrogant,
1: self-critical yeah. to a fault.
0: Yeah, he's he critiques Oliver of being arrogant, but in truth it's more so him. And he's obviously very smart in this movie, but that does come across in the beginning and he kind of transforms as the movie progresses. And then the reason I don't think you're supposed to like Oliver in the beginning is because you exclusively see Oliver through Elio's eyes. So you, or at least me as a viewer, grow to like Oliver as Elio grows to, like, Oliver.
1: Right. I think that one of the strongest aspects in the earlier part of the film is seeing their relationship evolve from people sharing a room to friends and so on. You know, like you mentioned before, the, the, the film's plot itself is very simple, but it's all underneath the surface. It's, you know, the subtext that guides the scene. And There are so many subtle performances and nuances to every line of dialogue, and it's really, uh, it was really fascinating to see. It's, it really, like, I think it, like, challenges the viewer by really, like, forcing you to put yourself into the shoes of one of those two. And I've never felt so, like, emotionally invested or, like, really got into the headspace of a character like Elio.
0: And you talk about the evolution of Elio's character. And I think the pivotal moment in that is when the mother is reading a German story to Elio's father and Elio. And it's about a knight and a princess and they like each other, but they don't know that the other likes them. So the knight kind of asks himself, is it better to speak or to die? Is it better to risk something, risk a relationship with this person, than it is to just bottle it up, let the emotions die, let them die with you? And I, this didn't stick out to me the first time I watched it, but the second time, I kept thinking that this was sort of the queer version of, is it better to have loved and have lost... Than to have never loved at all. Because there is. In western culture there is. Or honestly all cultures. There is more at stake. Trying to start a romantic relationship. With someone of the same sex. Than there is of. An opposite sex. Because of lingering. Homophobia honestly. Lingering. Heteronormative
1: behaviors present in multiple societies. Mm -hmm.
0: Choosing to speak. It could be. end of a relationship it could lead to you being ostracized from a friend group a myriad of things that don't necessarily fall into the ballpark of what we typically view as homophobia and that's another aspect of the movie that I really liked while we're talking about themes and why it felt right for this time right now is where Moonlight is about the homophobia like the schoolyard homophobia the bullying and that aspects of it And that's certainly important. It's still important today. Several communities, hundreds of communities have to deal with that. There are also aspects of queer life that are difficult besides that. It's hard. That extra threat of asking someone out of the same sex is a difficulty of queer life that cisgender heteronormative relationships don't have to think about.
1: And I think we're approaching it with queer point of views. And I think we can easily approach this film because we can relate to it. But I think this film would even work for uh, cis-hetero people as well. I think the film perfectly describes that queer experience and the the complex emotions that that brings with it uh, through not only Elio's uh, performance himself, but the way his relationship dynamic changes with the loved ones that he surrounds himself. And I think that's best illustrated with the... Uh, relationship that Elio has with his girlfriend,
0: Marzia. Mm-hmm. And I think that is another aspect of LGBTQ plus identity that isn't explored often in movies, is not to say that it's a choice, which it obviously isn't, but that experimenting that a lot of people kind of do with people of the opposite sex, with what is viewed as heteronormative um, before they like kind of come out to themselves as is being phrased. So Elio seems genuinely attracted to Marzia, and he may have been. Um, his identity identity is never explicitly laid out, but in this specific instance, he falls for Oliver. And what I really like is it's so quiet, and it's not the part of the movie that you remember a year after seeing this. But I really like. When Marzia sees him emotional in the car, she knows what most likely happened. And she just comes up and is like, I'm not angry. Friends for life. And I think that's really special. And that's how the movie chooses to handle a majority of the reactions, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But just that exploration of both worlds when you're young, as you're trying to figure out who you are, who you are, that nuance, you don't see a lot in even the lgbtq plus movies we do have
1: definitely and i think building off of that this film is very much an exploration of elio's sexuality one of the conclusions that i feel like i personally came to after watching this film is that i think perhaps their relationship didn't work out because elio was more interested in the idea of oliver than oliver himself as an actual person I think Oliver represents kind of like the gateway to his new sexuality, and they do enjoy each other. But I feel like there, you know, there is little hints of like tension between the two all throughout it, even from the very beginning before they start becoming romantically involved and afterwards. And I think when they make the trip to
0: that one city, I don't remember, but I think it's somewhere else in Italy before uh, Oliver eventually flies out of Europe. Right there is. There's there's one
1: line where it's like, in the song that's playing overhead, uh, there's, there's nothing behind those eyes, you know. And constantly the characters hide their eyes in sunglasses. And, you know, I don't know if I'm reading too into that, but I think they, you know, Oliver was a mystery. An enticing, seductive mystery. And when they f- fully met each other, they realized perhaps... It wouldn't work out and it was more of a thrill.
0: I don't think that's wrong. I don't think there's any wrong interpretation of a movie as subtle as this, but I do think I kind of disagree. I think it may have been infatuation. It may have been, I'm in love with the fact that I get to fully express this love, but I do think there was something about the other for each of them, for Elio and Oliver, because that conversation with the dad they talk about how truly good Oliver was and then there's like that pause and Elio's like but he was better than me and then the dad stops him and is like he would have said that about you so I think there is that genuine love that may be wrapped up in the things you're talking about but I don't think it's exclusively the idea of Oliver
1: I it's like I I I don't I definitely agree with both you, yours and mine it's just like it's very like we said earlier this film is wrapped in subtext and so you know life like life it's very complex and it's not very nothing's really spelled out to the yeah. audience so i don't know maybe i'll my i'm still making up my opinion of the film as we're discussing it right yeah. now
0: i mean honestly in ways i am too and i saw the movie year and a half ago so i think that's the one of the special aspects of this movie i kind of would like to move into something you brought up is the exploration of value of sexuality uh if you don't mind sure so fruit specifically peaches and apricots is shown as a symbol for lust and sexuality which i picked up from the movie but you informed me was from roman mythology exactly that stands for Love and... Love and marriage and courting mm. behavior. And fruit is always shown as Elio is longing for Oliver. The shot that stands out in my mind is the long shot of the apricot tree before Elio walks over to Oliver, who is reading something he doesn't understand. So Elio's in his chair. He gets up. And as he's bonding with Oliver, which you don't actually see, you just hear, is just showing this apricot tree. And that's obviously a theme through the whole movie. And... I think the movie tells us not to be ashamed of the steps we go through during that kind of awakening of one's sexuality. So the movie's very honest about everything. It's honest about teenage angst and some of the more embarrassing aspects that come to that. I think specifically of the scene with Oliver's shorts that Elio <laughs> enjoys while Oliver's not there <laughs> with the door open, which I always thought was bold <laughs> um it's honest about the awkwardness of losing your virginity with the conversation marzia and elio have after where he's like apologizing and she's laughing it it doesn't overly romanticize that it captures the romantic aspects of it but it doesn't create like you're watching a movie this is magical <laughs> and it's honestly it's just in general it's honest about what we do, and what we are ashamed of, and it tells us we don't have to be.
1: You know, the, the whole reason why Oliver is there is so that he can study the anthropology and the archaeology of the statues of the praxalite sculptures of ancient antiquity. And kind of, I think one of the messages of the film is allow yourself to embrace your sexuality and sensuality to the fullest, as the ancients did before you know the heteronormative behaviors of the west became standardized the further they get the further they fall in love and immerse themselves in, the, in their love the further they enter the world of antiquity they're surrounded by statues and old roman ruins and coliseums and brick walls and when they begin to fall apart you know that you see more and more technology in the scenes and they're separated by a train as Oliver leaves. And Mm -hmm. I think rely in the wisdom of the ancients, I guess, in a way.
0: Yeah, I really like that. That's why I like that my co-host is (laughs) fluent in art history. Um, I never thought of that, but just from you saying that, I thought about the opening, which is all the shots of the pictures that they will be looking at over the summer of ancient sculptures that, as Oliver says himself, are very sensual
1: Mm -hmm. inviting you to touch them and you know seduce those Mm -hmm. figures
0: yeah and just continuing the conversation of like sexuality i think the scene probably to its fault that everyone thinks of with this movie is that peach scene where he essentially (laughs) masturbates with one that scene as well as the scene with the shorts they're shot in broad daylight and it kind of puts this beautiful tint on it because the filmmaking is so stellar. The production design is so stellar. The score is so stellar. And Oliver's reaction in the actual text of the movie of like how kind of friendly he is and like messing with him and then trying to eat the peach. It's again dismantling this idea that we should be ashamed of our sexuality in any way. And I think that people don't get that. When they talk about this scene, I think about how Timothy Chalamet was ta- was asked about this scene every single interview, <laughs> and he eventually was like, "Just stop fucking asking me about it." Um, I think that's a really important thesis of the movie, and that's probably the climax of that thesis.
1: That's a uh, very well said. I didn't know
0: he.
1: <laughs> I didn't know that was the one takeaway general audiences had about this film. Uh,
0: maybe, maybe I'm doing a straw man argument maybe people aren't really saying that it feels like that's the it
1: dominated the discussion yeah
0: where shape of water was the fish sex movie this was the peach sex movie because those were the same oscar season right (laughs) and then we've mentioned as we've been talking about the filmmaking and the score i just wanted to say Sufjan Stevens soundtrack specifically the two new songs he adds specifically mystery of love are stellar (laughs)
1: beautiful they're stuck in my head
0: yeah they're I don't usually listen to that kind of music, but these songs are really moving and the context what they're use in the movie, I mean that the beautiful shots of Elio waiting um, for Oliver to come back while they're in that weird session of Oliver kind of ignoring Elio and the weird like film skipping view almost, mm. the like color gradient is you don't see that again in the movie. But it just kind of captures the essence of the filmmaking in this movie. I don't know if I'm making sense, but I think we talked about afterwards how this movie kind of encourages daydreaming based on the typical plot, the long run time, and most importantly, the beautiful score and scenery. I think certain directors, the the way they approach a scene is that they
1: approach it with the mindset of what is the end goal that... What is the end emotion that I want to elicit in the viewers? And what I really appreciate about this film is that, like we were saying, it lets you come to your own conclusions. And I feel as if what captivated, captivated me about this film was how it, how scenes would play out. And, you know, you have to put yourself in those shoes. And, you know, it's aided by the cinematography. And, you know, you're really immersed Fully in the worlds they travel through. And, you know, when they're on the grass making out, you're making out with them, you know? <laughs> if it's, you are made an active participant in the sensuality of the film, similar to The Fly in a weird comparison, the way sex
0: was filmed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I definitely wouldn't have tied this movie to The Fly. <laughs> but maybe upon a rewatch, I would see it. Double feature. The fly and Call Me By Your Name. (laughs) And we talk about the relationships in the movie. And towards the end, one of the strongest scenes is that relationship with Elio and his father.
1: Yes. This this scene hit me like a freight train. You know, Elio has returned from the city that he and Oliver visit at the end of the film. He was picked up at the train station by his mother. And he and his father sit down to talk about the events that transcribe, transpired and the events or the emotions that Elio is feeling or the lack thereof. And his father essentially tells him that, you know, in every relationship you're going to put in some, and then, if when those relationships fall apart, you'll you'll never be the same again. You'll never be whole again. And even though there is hardship to feel in relationships, you have to you can't deny yourself the feelings associated with that. Because if you try and deny yourself the hardships that come with a breakup, then you'll you deny yourself the joy and the the fun and the adventure of said relationships and you have to take the good with the bad and the ugly (laughs) enough (laughs) and that really resonated with me on a personal level because in the past i have struggled with emotions and allowing myself to feel the full breadth of things that i have experienced and by having the father deliver this wisdom to his son I think it's very much the filmmaker and the storytellers telling us allow yourself to approach life with all its assets and experiences and just to not deny yourself anything and that all experiences are valid and you know like, pain is inevitable. I, It's hard to summarize this train of thoughts. What were your thoughts on that scene?
0: Yeah, I think that scene is actually concluded with the end of the movie because you see Elio... Oh, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. You see Elio in front of that fireplace for several minutes, and his face does exactly what his dad tells him to do. He hears that Oliver is getting married... As the song starts of Sufjan Stevens, he has loved Oliver for the last time. And that first reaction is the pain of that. But then he works through that. He works through the pain. And through his tears, you see his smile. And that smile is what the movie ends on. And it's telling us that, as the father says, if you bottle up the sadness associated with a relationship ending you're also bottling up the joy that came in that relationship and that as hard as it may be if you bottle that up you're losing a part of yourself and then if you do that every time a relationship goes south you are left empty at 30 because you lost all those parts of yourself and i think that's incredibly special and important and i really appreciate that they tell us that and they show us that It leads to one of the most emotional endings for a movie. And also one of the most subtle endings for a movie in the last several years, in my opinion. I also think there's a lot of value to it coming from the father figure in this movie. He's very progressive for today. But especially for 1983, when the movie takes place. When Elio's like, I almost had sex with Marzia. He's like, why didn't you? And he engages on that. And... That has clearly led to the mature nature that Elio exhibits, and he also
1: he doesn't tease him. He doesn't make fun of him for not engaging. He leans into it and asks and tries to, you know, get him to open up in that scene. And mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't in that moment.
0: But it's just a great indicator of his paternal nature, mm-hmm. and he's willing to set aside his paternity, his fatherhood, to be vulnerable with Elio when he talks about the fact that he got close with a friend with an, what's implied with another man, but instead of choosing to speak, he chose to die. And he's telling Elio that even though it hurts right now, from what I've lived through, you made the right decision and you're going to have joy at the end of this dark tunnel.
1: And I think that's the perfect note to end this film on. Do
0: you have any other closing remarks? Not really. I just want to say, I feel bad if we spoiled stuff if you haven't seen this movie. But if you haven't seen this movie, <laughs> if you're queer, this is, for me personally and for Ted now, this has been a great movie to see ourselves in. If you're straight, switch it up for a change. See some other people. Uh, Get a new perspective. Yeah. We've done it growing up. We did it in When Harry Met Sally, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. You can do it for Call Me By Your Name and Moonlight <laughs> and whatnot. Um, and then if neither of those interests you, I think the filmmaking is really stellar. So.
1: Definitely, this is a phenomenal film. I'm so glad I picked this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I think this is one of the great joys of doing this podcast with you. Is you know you being able to introduce films that I've never been exposed to and being able to explore emotions that I've never really seen in media depicted before. Mm-hmm. So. You have to watch this.
0: Yeah. Episode nine. (laughs) This was a lot of fun. This is one of my favorite conversations. And I'm excited to do it two weeks from now. Ted, what is the genre we decided on? So we discussed several options. And we
1: decided to once again do science fiction for our next topic. So Clayton, what film am I going to
0: be watching for this coming week? So we've done sci-fi a couple times, and it's never exactly been the movies you would think of with sci-fi. So we've done the fly. Yeah, we did the fly and Train to Busan. Train to Busan, kind, kind sort of, of a science fiction mm-hmm. or you know. And then did we do another sci-fi? We, we did
1: Metropolis and Children of Men.
0: Yeah, so movies they don't necessarily think of as sci-fi, and I want to continue that way, choosing an animated film. Oh, specifically Your Name. This is, oh, okay. <laughs> this is a body-switching movie that you do not think of when you hear the genre sci-fi, but this is our podcast, I'm going to say it counts. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't want to give much away other than it's a body-switching movie and it's an anime that came out in the last several years, and a lot of people really love it, including me, so I'm excited to share it with you.
1: Awesome. Well, this makes me feel good about my choice for science fiction film. I had a little doubt and hesitation in my mind because... I don't know if it fully fits science fiction, but I think we found a new classifier for it. Uh, The film that I would like you to watch is David Lynch's Eraserhead. Ooh, okay. I'm excited. This is a film that David Lynch is very, very near and dear to my heart. Twin Peaks The Return is the greatest piece of media I'll ever consume. And as a creator, if I could even approach a, a a fraction of how great and amazing that was I'll be content with my life and A Head is just a phenomenal film and it I saw it maybe a year ago and I still think about it every day
0: Awesome I'm excited I know David Lynch is very special to you and He's a director I have almost zero experience with, so I think starting with one of his earlier films is going to be a good introduction into a filmography I really want to dissect. So
1: Awesome. Cool. So our intro song is Outro by Wolfpack. The artwork of the thumbnail that you are currently looking at, if you look down at your phone or whatever device you're looking at, (laughs) is done by me. You can find my artwork on Twitter and Instagram at these fine times however i'm more active on instagram uh clayton is there any place our beautiful (laughs) wonderful listeners can find you
0: yeah i um i host two other podcasts one is also movie related the terry talks podcast hoping to do some more regular episodes with that coming soon um past conversations include marvel and game of thrones and mission impossible so that's a lot of fun And then kind of diverging from movies, I have a Stories worth Sharing podcast where I interview different hosts, different guests, different hosts interview different guests. Um, Ted has interviewed a professor. I interviewed the assistant director of ResLife. It's a really fun way to spend an hour with someone and really deep dive into uh, who they are, what they do. Um, And that's a lot of fun. So if you can, if you can stand my voice, (laughs) um, I highly recommend both of those. Alright, thank you everyone for listening,
1: and we will see you soon. Bye!